Open your Bibles to Matthew 28. We'll be in verses 11 to 15 this morning. Matthew 28, 11 to 15. As I said, we're coming up on the holidays. Thanksgiving, obviously, first. Christmas soon coming, where we're going to be around lots of family members. And that brings some joy and maybe it brings some angst, maybe a little bit. Don't we all know our family members, the ones that we can talk with about anything and the ones that we don't talk with about much? The ones that we know we can share lots of things with and the ones we go avoid politics with that guy. Right? We know this one. Yeah? Amen. I get some amens around there. Yeah? We know the ones that we can talk about religion with and the ones that we go just avoid the topic altogether. Right? It raises some anxiety for us, I think, as we get closer to the holidays and we think about our family members coming around and, and the boldness that it takes. Sometimes sharing the gospel with family members is sometimes the hardest thing to do. It's often very it's a lot easier to talk to a complete stranger about the faith you have in Christ than sometimes it is to share the hope of the resurrection with those that know you the most. They know all your dirt and you know all theirs. And they're quick to throw it up in your face because they know you're their family member, you can't leave, right? What well, brings the question to mind, why is it that there are some members of our family that you can see the joy of Jesus all over their face, and then there's others that seem so callous to the presentation of the gospel? Let's look in our scripture this morning in Matthew 28, 11 to 15. While they were going... Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It doesn't matter whether we're reading one verse or whether we're reading many verses of Scripture, whether we're looking at a chapter or even a whole book. Eventually, there's going to be a point when we're reading that we have to pause and take inventory of what we've just read and really ask the question, what exactly am I looking at here? It's important to ask the question, why has this author included this story right here at this point in time? There are a thousand things that he could have told us. There are some things you'll notice that are told to us in Matthew that are not in Mark or Luke or John and some things in all those Gospels that aren't told to us in Matthew. Why did they pick these details and not the other details? Why haven't they just told us Literally everything that happened. John tells us all the books in the world couldn't fill all the things that Jesus did if I were to tell you all of them. We have to ask, what am I looking at here? And why am I looking at it? And one of the reasons that I like to slow down as we go through Scripture is because often there's so much that we just run right past. 
And I think this is one of those passages, if we were just reading in our little devotional in the morning or something like that, we might just skim right past these five verses and not even think much about it other than this is what happened. But here we get to these five verses of Scripture and we're asking, what is it exactly that we're seeing here? Well, on the surface, we're looking at a good old-fashioned cover-up, right? I think there's multiple levels to this passage. And the first level, the top level, that's very easy to see, every single one of us are going to be able to point it out, is a good old-fashioned cover-up. The chief priests are there to, to quell the rumors of Jesus' resurrection by getting the guards to tell a different story than what they actually witnessed or what actually took place. Now, interestingly enough, there is an M.O., that starts to rise to the surface for the chief priests that we've seen even over the last few months as we've been reading this story in how they like to undermine the story of Jesus. And that is, they coerce people into believing different things with money or to saying different things with money or perhaps even doing different things with money. The point is, they like to use money to undermine the story of Jesus. Remember just a while back, they took a man by the name of Judas Iscariot and they gave him money as a bribe to turn over the location of Jesus. And he did this happily at first. He was excited about it and took the money and turned over Jesus. He led them to the garden where he was with his disciples and handed him over. This is before face recognition cameras and all those kinds of things where they could figure out where people were. He, he just, they needed a good old-fashioned snitch, and he became that for them. He turned him over. Now they're going to bribe the temple guard. They're going to pay more money for the false telling of the temple guard to go out. This, you see, is a well-worn road for the Jewish leaders who like to do this sort of thing and, and bribe uh, to get the story out that they want to get out. Sadly, there's little doubt where this money comes from. This money's coming from the temple treasury. You realize that? They're not paying out of their own pockets, of course. They're paying out of the pockets of the temple of God. The shadow of the real temple of God, Christ. So they are taking money out of the temple of God to undermine the story of the true temple of God. You understand the irony the tragic irony that's present here in their bribery. We also know that this is, of course, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, this is a temple guard. This is a group of Jews. The reason that we know this is not a group of Roman soldiers is because who do they report to when this happens? They report to their bosses, the chief priests. They go to them and they tell them what's happened. The chief priests also say that they'll, they assure them, hey, if there's a disturbance that comes to the governor's ears, We'll intervene on your behalf. We'll intercede on your behalf. We'll assuage his fears. They would have absolutely no say in the matter if this were, these were Roman soldiers. Now, the governor's concern would be that if there's a disturbance that pops up in the land that has caused chaos to erupt, he's going to step in and keep the peace. That's really the Roman government's interest in the land at this point is keeping the peace. So they're going to step in and they're going to do 
what is the least cumbersome for them way of keeping the peace. If that means beating the people into submission, then that's what they'll do. If that means putting to death those who were at fault for this thing blowing up, then that's what they'll do. So the chief priests are saying, look, we'll intervene. We'll say, hey, we've got it taken care of. Perhaps even they'll pay a bribe to this guy. So on the surface, this is a good old-fashioned cover-up. But if you go to the next level of this, just under the surface, this is actually a foil to what comes next week in the Great Commission. This is a foil. It's not just a cover-up. It's a foil to the preaching of the good news of the gospel. You know what a foil is? A foil is a plan that is designed to prevent something from happening. So it's, it's a concoction, a plan they've come up with to prevent the spread of the good news by undermining it with a lie. You understand? This is Matthew's way of saying there was a plan that we know coming next week, Matthew 28, 8, uh, 16 to, to 20, which is the Great Commission, we know. This is a plan... That's the anti-gospel. Look at verses 13 to 14. He says, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We should probably refer to this part of the passage as the not-so-great commission. Right? We know the great commission coming next week. This is the not-so-great commission. Here we see an attempt to squelch the proclaiming of the good news by undermining it. Basically, if we, if we keep in mind what Jesus says next week, go therefore into all nations, proclaiming the good news, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If we keep in mind what Jesus is going to say next week, and if we really think about the priest's words here in this passage as undermining that, it's almost as if they're saying, go therefore and lie to all would-be disciples in all nations, reminding them of the temple, the chief priest, and animal sacrifice. And lo, we will be with you always, bribing to keep you out of trouble, even to the end of the age. So they think. In the next passage, we're going to be commissioned into going and telling the good news of the resurrection and the incentive that's going to be given to the disciples. Do you remember what it is? Jesus says, I will be with you always. That is the incentive. What, what is it that, that actually pushes us out into the world to share the gospel? It's the ever-abiding presence of Christ with us. And what does that actually mean for the fueling of the Great Commission? Well, what we find in Acts and the rest of the New Testament is that the preaching of the disciples, it gets them out of trouble? No. It gets them into trouble. Jesus never promises to His disciples that the preaching of the Word and His presence with them is going to get them out of trouble. In fact, He assures them it's going to get you into trouble. People are going to reject you. They're going to spit on you. They're going to reject you from the synagogues. They're going to beat you. They're going to kill you for my name. But rest assured, they hated me first, so it's okay. I'm going to go with you. The one that they hated first is going to be there with you all the way. It's Jesus' ongoing presence through the Holy Spirit that enables them to continue. But here in the not-so-great commission, 
You have the chief priests who say that our job is to go before you. We're going to intercede on your behalf to the governor who could have the ability to punish you. And as you go out into this anti-ministry and tell lies about the missing body of Jesus, you're to say, well, it was their disciples that came and stole them away. It's going to be us that intercedes for you. It's going to be our presence interceding on your behalf before the governor, enabling you to stay out of trouble so that you don't get caught. So, on the surface, we're looking at a good old-fashioned cover-up. Just under the surface, we're looking at a foil to what's coming next week in the Great Commission. But we're also looking at something much more severe. We're looking at the effects of unbelief. The heart of this passage is an unbelieving nation that chooses to believe a lie rather than truth. That continues in unbelief. I want you to think about this from several different perspectives. First, I want you to think about this from the perspective of the soldiers. Imagine you were a soldier. You were a temple guard. You're given your marching orders by your boss. You've no doubt come in contact with this man that they just crucified, this man named Jesus. You've been in the temple area keeping the ground safe when he was there teaching. So you've seen him a number of times. No doubt there's been some chief priests that have come beside you and said, hey, keep your eye on that guy. We, we've got some word that he's up to no good. We want you to make sure that the grounds are secure. You've been put on notice. And then one day, they crucified him. You were probably somewhere close when you watched him hauled away to be crucified. Well, sometime on Saturday, after his crucifixion, the chief priests come to you and tell you that there's a plot that they've heard about it's been rumored where his disciples are going to go try to steal the body and hide it away and claim that he has been raised from the dead. And so we want you to go and make sure that this doesn't happen. Your job then is to go stand before the tomb, make sure that it stays sealed, make sure that nobody comes and attempts to steal the body away. And so you're standing there keeping watch over the tomb, ensuring that the dead body inside not only stays dead, but stays inside. And then all of a sudden you feel a rumbling on the ground. And there's this flash of light. And there, standing in front of you, is a warrior of light, an angel, glory unfurled in front of you, and it leaves no doubt where he came from. You understand immediately that this is an angel from heaven. You cannot explain it any other way. And the next thing you know, you're waking up, face in the dirt, and some women have just run over your supposed dead body, running away from this empty tomb. The last thing you remember is this angel standing in front of you, jumping on top of this stone and just rolling it away like it is of no consequence to him and sitting on top of it, at which point you passed out. Now you wake up and you see these women running away, an empty tomb, you see no angel anymore, you rub your eyes, every, the vision's coming back together, you realize what has taken 
taken place. Now, having just witnessed this amazing sight, you having been overcome with fear to the point where you passed out, what do you think your next move would be? Do you think it would be to go back to your bosses and to accept a bribe to tell a lie? Or do you think it might be to go and back to your home and, and maybe rethink your life choices? Consider, perhaps this guy that was teaching in a temple that was telling all these things that we thought were crazy might have been telling the truth. An angel, after all, just came and rolled back a stone. Perhaps they even went in the tomb, who knows, to see that it was empty. I don't know. Well, at least some of the guard chose to go back to their bosses and receive a bribe. You see that in verse 11. But you know, part of me wonders, with the fact that Matthew says some of the guard went back, that perhaps there was another some that went back to their home to consider the veracity of the resurrection. There's no indication one way or the other, but and there's no indication that they saw Jesus. But we know for sure that they saw an angel come down from heaven and roll back a stone. We know for sure that they were overcome with fear of said angel and that they passed out on the ground. Getting a glimpse of an angel leaves a mark on you. Or at least, it should. Yet some of the guard remain unbelieving. So we've got these... This group of guards, at least some of which, remain unbelieving in the truth of the gospel. Perhaps some do not. But think about this also from the perspective of the chief priests. You've studied the scriptures. You know what it says. You know where it says he would be born. You know where all of these things are supposed to take place. And you're also in on this little charade. They hear rumors about a man from Galilee performing tons of miracles, and they're called into the region of Galilee to confront said man. They witness, personally, a man with a withered hand have his hand restored to them in their synagogue right in front of them. They witness countless miracles, not least of which we're told in John the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. They witness it personally. Yet here they are, early Sunday morning. The guards are standing in front of them. The guards have their hands on their knees. They're panting from running just outside the city, into the city, trying to catch their breath. They're telling the chief priest between gasps of air, angel, tomb, rock, empty, bodies gone. We don't know what happened. We fell down. That's how it happened. The chief priests, rather than putting it all together, rather than putting the miracles that they've seen, the foretelling in the Old Testament, prophesying about Jesus, rather than putting together the report of the guards, all of those things, rather than putting it all together and, and saying, hey, maybe this really was the Messiah. Their plan instead is to say, hey, us and the guards are really the only ones that know about this. There's some ladies, but come on. Who are people going to believe, us or them? 
And so surely with our plan together, we can satisfy the curiosity of the people in the city. And so instead of putting all those things together and thinking maybe we were wrong, that this guy really was raised for the dead, they choose instead to engage in lying and bribery. And so with the guard, we can only speculate that by Matthew's words that potentially some may have believed in the guard. With the Jewish leadership, we know for certain that there were some amongst the Jewish leadership that actually did believe. Remember, we've seen Joseph of Arimathea just a few weeks ago in this very book. We also know from John that Nicodemus too, perhaps there were several others amongst the Jewish Sanhedrin that also believed. But we obviously know that many did not. But that's not all. One more aspect of this passage to notice is Matthew's comment in verse 15, which is what it all boils down to. He says, And this story has been spread amongst, among the Jews to this day. The unbelief present in this little story is not just amongst the guards. It's not just amongst the Jewish leadership. It's amongst the Jewish people as a whole. Now, even amongst the Jewish people, though, we know it's not every Jew. Remember, Peter, John, the apostles, the ladies, the first converts at Pentecost, they were all Jews. But Matthew's point is that the vast majority of Jews to this day believe in a lie rather than the truth of the resurrection. So this passage is the story of a cover-up. It's the beginning of a foil to next week's Great Commission. But it's mainly a story about the unbelief of an entire nation of people that choose to believe a lie rather than believe the story of the resurrection. And this passage is really important because verses 11 to 15 realize it closes all the events of Jerusalem. Next week is going to be in Galilee where Jesus gives the Great Commission. This is the last, the curtain call for the story as it wraps up in Jerusalem. We are left here with all of Jerusalem in unbelief, believing a lie. Trapped in a lie about the resurrection. It's almost like that part of the movie, right before the ending, where everything seems to be in complete and total darkness. Everybody is left in unbelief. You're tempted to think that this is how it all ends. With Jerusalem in complete unbelief. But the unbelief in Jerusalem and by the Jewish leaders actually has been one of the biggest themes weaving its way through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been told this over and over and over again throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew is that, hey, the largest percentage of Jews reject Jesus totally. They don't believe in His ministry. They actually bring Him to the point of crucifixion and they kill Him. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, who should be the first to receive the truth of the Messiah, reject Him completely out of hand. And as it ends here with the unbelief in Jerusalem, we have to ask the question, why is it that some seem to receive the good news of the resurrection as if it's not hard to believe. A guy getting up from the grave. 
Why is it that some find it very easy to believe in this? And some find it impossible to believe and opt instead that some peasant fishermen overtook some guards with weapons, rolled back a stone, stole a body, and perpetuated a lie to this day. To the point that they would even die for that lie without recanting. Isn't this the same question that we're actually asking today? As we gather around our Thanksgiving tables with our family members, I guarantee you, you can probably, if your family gets big enough, you can probably think of people in your mind. How come this guy over here, no matter how many times he hears the gospel, will still walk away in unbelief? And this person over here hears the gospel one time, weeps over their sin, and confesses faith in Jesus Christ. Why why is the disparity between the two? You'll hear the culture try to explain it away as intelligence. That doesn't work. Otherwise, we would have nothing but imbeciles that believed in the gospel, and I think it would be pretty obvious that Christianity is a religion for the dumb. That's not true. We have brilliant scholars after brilliant scholars that believe in the veracity of the resurrection. Why is it that they hear the preaching of the good news and they come to faith in Christ in repentance? And yet, there are others, even in our family, we tell the gospel to and it falls on deaf ears. The persistent unbelief of many around Jesus has been a major thread running through this book. And remember, Jesus has been performing miracles time after time, unimaginable miracles, and yet there is still unbelief. He's walked on water, he's multiplied bread, he's healed the blind, he's cast out demons, he's done all these kinds of things, and yet there remains unbelief of the people that are witnessing it with their own eyes. They're actually seeing this take place, and they're explaining it away, and they remain in unbelief. But remember, it's Jesus that says on Jerusalem, he pronounces a woe at the end of chapter 23, and he says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Remember, this has been going on for a while. Jerusalem has been in perpetual unbelief for a long time, dating all the way back to the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I'm one in the line of many. It's been going on for a while, but as this thread weaves its way through the gospel, we also find with it explanations from Jesus as to why this is the case. Why is there unbelief in the heart of many and belief in others? The most pivotal explanation that Matthew and Jesus gives to us goes all the way back in Matthew chapter 11, right in the center of this gospel. I want you to turn back there, if you will. Matthew chapter 11, turn all the way back to verse 25. The words are not going to be on the screen, so shock and awe goes out across the congregation. We actually have to turn our Bibles and look in the pages of Scripture. Look back at chapter 11, verse 25. I'm going to read them there. Jesus has has just pronounced in the previous passage, woe on the Jews. He's gone to these cities and he's done these miracles and people still question who he is. And he has pronounced woe. And he said, look, if I did these miracles in Canaanite cities in the Old Testament they would have repented and believed immediately. And yet, here you are, a group of Jews, and you see these miracles and you still don't believe. So he pronounces woe on them. And so after having pronounced woe on them, he says this in verse 25. It's a prayer. We get a glimpse. He prays this out loud for everybody to hear. He says in verse 25 and 26, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So, the first explanation that Jesus gives for the blindness of an entire group of people, or for any person for that matter, is that the Father's will was to hide this truth from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. And by little children, that's a phrase that's used throughout Matthew for people that depend on Jesus. That's adults that he's talking about, but it's people like tax collectors and sinners and disciples who are humble and come to him in humility. So this theme remains throughout the book where the Jewish leadership, the wise and understanding, those who have the truth and are supposed to receive the gospel of the good news of the Messiah, they remain in unbelief. And the tax collectors and the sinners and the disciples, they continue to understand their need for salvation. So he says one reason for unbelief that persists amongst people is the Father hides and reveals. He is the one responsible to hide and reveal. Hence, our prayer is always that the Lord remove the scales from someone's eye. But then look at chapter 13. So just a couple chapters later, look at chapter 13. And at the beginning, Jesus tells this, is the very first verse in, in chapter 13. It starts this parable of the sower, probably a parable that you may be familiar with where Jesus tells this parable of the sower, and it's this scenario where a sower goes out throwing seeds. He's just scattering it abroad, not really caring where it falls. And some seed is thrown on the path, you see there, and he says that the birds come and devour it from the path. And then some seed is thrown on rocky ground where there's initial crop that springs up, but then the sun comes out and kills the crop, and it withers and dies. And then other seed falls amongst soil that is thorny, which also it produces a crop, it grows up, but then the thorns choke it out and it eventually dies. And then finally there is one seed that is sown on good ground, good soil, and it produces a crop and it multiplies the crop. But you understand it's not until verse 18 that he actually explains this parable. And that's what I want you to hone in on. Chapter 13 Starting in verse 18, he says this, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for the, what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So we've seen that one explanation for unbelief, or the overriding explanation for unbelief, is it is the Father's sole responsibility to hide and reveal the truth of the gospel to people. So without that revelation of truth, the scales are not falling off, and there is no coming to repentance. Some, though, 
demonstrate when they hear the gospel this initial joy, this initial expectation, this surprise of the gospel. They initially show signs of belief, but the devil tempts and steals what they do have away. So whether it's the deceitfulness of riches, actual physical persecution, or perhaps it's just mere distraction. Get up out of the sanctuary, just leave, and immediately your tummy gets hungry and you think about what's for lunch and you forget all the things that were said before. So the father hides and reveals. The devil tempts and steals. But then he tells us another parable, starting in verse 24. He tells them the man sows good seed in his field. But then everyone goes to sleep. The workers go to sleep and an enemy comes along and sows weeds. Eventually the workers start to notice as the crop grows up that there's not just wheat here. There's also tares. There's weeds growing up together with them. And the master tells the servants, look, just wait until harvest time comes. And when harvest time comes, you can easily discern wheat from tare. And then gather the weeds first together, bundle them up and to be burned with fire and gather the wheat then into my barn. But a few verses later, he explains this parable in verse 36. Look at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and the disciples came to him. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Remember, not every parable gets an explanation. Only a few parables actually get an explanation in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew records just these few. Why do you think he's recorded them? Because he wants you to leave no room for interpretation here. There is no room for interpretation of these parables. He's recorded Jesus' exact words to help us understand exactly what these parables mean. The disciples are having to understand that there are some people in the world, even amongst their Jewish brothers, so hard to fathom that this might be amongst my Jewish brothers that are offspring of their father, the devil. They are Satan's yield. So Jesus has been explaining unbelief that exists amongst the people that the disciples are going to come in contact with. They have, they have to know that all of these realities are present in any one person. The Father alone hides and reveals the truth of the Gospel. The devil tempts and steals, and some are the Satan's yield. They are his. They belong to him. So Jesus and Matthew have laid this foundation 
for us, for the unbelief that exists in the world and amongst even the Jews of Jesus' own day? Why is it that some remain unbelieving? You can see Him walk on water. You've witnessed Him raise Lazarus from the dead. You hear this report of the guards, and yet you still remain in unbelief. That seems impossible. How often is it, too, that we long to just see proof of Jesus? How many times do we think to ourselves, man, what I wouldn't give to be back in Jesus' day and to just witness Him open the eyes of the blind? Man, I would love to have seen that. What about the resurrection of Lazarus? Man, I would have loved to have seen that. How miraculous is it that at the preaching of the good news of the resurrection, without tangible evidence sitting right in front of us that we can see and touch Jesus and witness the resurrection, that there are still some who come to faith in Christ and repent of their sin. What a miracle that is. It helps us understand then the role of the chief priest and the role that they play in this whole drama in the book of Matthew. First of all, they're broadly speaking children of their father, the devil. Jesus says that in other Gospels, you are of your father, the devil. Now Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, perhaps a few others, are the exception to that. But largely speaking, they're offspring of the devil. They persist in unbelief and nothing will cause them to believe. What that also means is that this is Matthew's way of helping us understand they're becoming tools of their father, the devil, as well. They're going to put Christ to death. They already have put Him to death. And now, they're going to lead the rest of the nation in unbelief by proclaiming the not-so-great commission, the anti-gospel, in our passage this morning. So in our passage, what Matthew is telling us is that the lies regarding the resurrection of Jesus are propagated by the very ones that put Him to death and they contribute to the unbelief amongst the Jewish people to this day. But you can't just read this passage in isolation from the rest of the book. The spreading of lies about the resurrection by the Jewish leadership and the believed lies by the Jewish people, broadly speaking, it's an expectation that's been built this whole time within the book of Matthew. He's been telling you this whole time, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to it. They've been this way since the beginning. Their necks have been slow to turn. Their hearts have been like stone from the beginning. And as this gospel comes to a close, in this second to last passage, you're left with that feeling of despair. Well, then this is it. This is all that's left. But you understand what's happening now is that Matthew has put two passages up next to each other. One where there's complete and total rejection in Jerusalem. Darkness spreads aplenty. And yet in the last passage, which admittedly we haven't looked at yet, we will be next week, turns its attention to Galilee where light has dawned. And there the resurrected Christ is going to send His little ones out on a mission to proclaim the real gospel. 
And so in this movie, this drama that we've been watching in Matthew unfold, we get this last little scene where darkness has closed around Jerusalem, but then we turn our attention to the right, and out on the horizon, the sun is rising, and you see the cowboy with his chaps on and his revolver at his right hand and his cowboy hat on coming into Jerusalem yet again in the person of his little ones, coming to share the good news of the resurrection. And this time it's going to be different. Because when Pentecost happens, there will be a massive outbreak of belief amongst the Jewish people. Starting with them. There exists many hard hearts, many blind eyes, many who have swallowed hook, line, and sinker all of the lies that philosophers and theologians that are undermining the account of the Gospels and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ tell them. They swallow it hook, line, and sinker. They existed in the first century Jerusalem. They're here in the 21st century America. They're sitting around your Thanksgiving table. They are next door to you. They are friends of yours. They are co-workers of yours. Some have pretended to be Christians for a long time. They've sat in churches aplenty. They've sang songs. They've prayed prayers. They've read scriptures. They've done good works for you. And yet, they persist in unbelief. Perhaps even the pandemic has revealed some of those to you. Who have found it very, a very good thing to stay at home every day and persist in avoidance of the church body, gathering together in worship. Perhaps there's been other things that have revealed it to you. Or perhaps they remain still undercover. Some are quite comfortable to tell you about their unbelief. The ones that you might be avoiding around the Thanksgiving Day table, or at least avoiding certain topics. Christian, I want you to understand that this passage helps us with a few things. Whether it's preparation for our unbelieving family members to come over to our house at Thanksgiving, or perhaps our friends and our neighbors every single day, you need to understand a few things, maybe even more, obviously much more than, than what I could probably get to today, but I want you to understand at least this. Unbelief is not fundamentally an evidence problem. Do you understand that? Unbelief is not fundamentally an evidence problem. Your family members, your friends, maybe even you, you remain in unbelief and you think, man, if I just had a little bit more evidence, listen, if watching a dead man come out of a grave and walk around in Lazarus or in Jesus, if watching a man with a withered hand have it restored to working condition, if watching a demon-possessed man have demons cast out of him, watching a blind man have sight, if watching a lame person walk was not enough to convince the unbelieving people around Jesus, then more evidence is not going to convince you either. But Christian, you also need to understand that the unbelief that exists in your family member is not an evidence problem. Now, evidence is still necessary. The proclaiming of the gospel is still necessary. We believe in a logical gospel. 
We believe that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. What is it for him to raise the dead? Nothing. If you remain in unbelief, then I will tell you, you believe that the world was created how? Came to existence how? By matter that was floating around, dead matter that was floating around in space somewhere. I believe that there was dead matter that came to life too in the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. Dead matter walked out of that grave. Is it that much of a stretch? If he really is true, can't he do anything? Evidence is still necessary, but the spiritual blindness is only overcome by God opening the eyes of your friend, of your family member, of your loved one, of you. But the second thing that you have to understand, this passage doesn't exist in isolation. This passage has one yet to come. Right on the back end of it, the Great Commission. God opens eyes only through gospel proclamation. God opens eyes only through gospel proclamation. So that means, Christian, you have to be ready always in season and out of season to give an account of the hope that is within you. You have to be ready to give an account. Your apologetics matters. Your study of Scripture matters. Your understanding of the coherence of the gospel matters. Our spending time in building blocks and in Sunday school classes talking about the truth of the text and talking about the ins and outs and understanding even all the academic type details, all of those things matter. They give power to your preaching. They give evidence to your gospel proclamation. They are important for you to understand. You cannot neglect spiritual growth because, well, God will do what He does. No, that's not good enough. You, as a Christian, have a responsibility to grow. You have a responsibility to apply yourself to the words of Scripture, to understand and to know. God opens eyes through gospel proclamation. You're not responsible, though, for how your family member responds, how your friend responds. Do you understand that? That ultimately you give an account. You remain faithful to the preaching of the gospel. You remain faithful to give evidence for the hope that is within you. You remain faithful to grow as a Christian. You remain faithful to live a life of meek and humble service to the Lord before your unbelieving friends and family members. You remain faithful. It is not your responsibility to convert anyone. Remain faithful. Proclaim the gospel. And leave God to open the eyes of the blind and unbelieving. If you find yourself in unbelief, I would ask you, to truly consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, really, study it. Listen, if 2,000 years ago, a man actually got up from the dead and walked out, you probably need to figure out whether or not that was true. It's worth your life to figure out whether it is true or not. It is worth your investigation. 
it is worth giving it serious consideration because a whole host of men, 500, if we're to believe the Scriptures, saw Him resurrected and lived to tell the tale and then died at the hands of men because they proclaimed it. Not recanting their testimony. That they knew what they saw. If that man truly did get up from the grave, here's what that means. That what he said he did and who he said he was is true. Because he said he was sent from God. That he was God in the flesh. He said that he was here to die for your sins and mine. So that means that on the cross, that the wrath of God that he has stored up for you was poured out on the shoulders of Christ. That he went to the cross to bear the penalty for your sins, but it is only by faith in him that the penalty of your sins is absorbed. Do you understand what that means? That all who do not believe in him, the wrath of God remains on them. So that means that when you die, you stand to give an account. Every single one of us, for the life that we've lived, we stand to give an account before the Lord. And here's how that's going to go, one of two ways. Either you're going to give an account for yourself, or Christ is going to be your defense attorney, who's going to stand in between you and God the Father, and say, yes, all of these sins are true, and I have borne the penalty on my own shoulders for them. Now, which do you want it to be? Do you really think that all of your good works are going to amount to your forgiveness in eternity? Listen, your life, as good as it may have been, as many good deeds as you may have done, do they compare to the holiness of God? That's what you're measured against. You're not measured against the guy sitting next to you. Because it may be true, you might be better than him. Ladies, if the man sitting next to you is your husband, you probably are. It may be true, you may be better than the guy sitting next to you. But that's not what you're measured against. You're measured against the holiness of God. So you need to ask yourself, do I measure up to that? And if not, I need to figure out this whole Jesus thing. So I would ask you, the good news of the gospel is that the grace of God and forgiveness of sin and eternal life is free to you. It will cost your life, though. You need to determine what do you believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of the blind and unbelieving. Father, I pray that if there be any scales on any eyes in here, that you would help them to fall off. That you would remove them. That you would open up their mind, their heart, their ears to hear, to receive. That you would protect their heart from any word of the gospel being snatched away. We know that we have an adversary. Some have given prey to him already. Have been prey to him. We pray that with the power of the gospel, you would remove them from the jaws of the adversary. And restore them to life even now. That they would repent of their sins. They would find the grace that you have given to us in Christ, irresistible. And that they would come running to Christ 
who forgives them. Pray for us as Christians that you would give us boldness to proclaim the gospel, to preach it, to be faithful, and to not grow discouraged or weary at persistent unbelief, but continue to hope that you will open the eyes of the blind, whether that be our family members, our neighbors, coworkers, or our friends. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.